Our scripture today uh, comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses, 1 to, er, verses 11 and then to 5.11. Um, it says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those that have fallen asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are now doing. The study of archaeology really began to pick up steam in the early 1800s in Egypt. There were these colossal monuments that were dug right up out of the ground. And sometimes they were even so big that they began to peek out over the surface. The monuments were meant to memorialize people who lived as long as 5,000 years ago, who apparently were incredibly powerful. But of course, history had totally forgotten about them. It had been so long that even their huge monuments were completely buried underground. Nobody ever really knew the names of Naram-Sin or Sargon or Ramses or Memnon. Very few people from this time were able to make huge monuments made in their name, but some endeavored to make monuments so that something of their legacy would last forever. But apparently it was a fool's errand, and even massive monuments weren't enough to give immortality. A British poet named Percy Shelley wrote this poem about this irony, and this uh, painting is, is made after that poem. It says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well knew those passions read. 
which yet survive, stamped on them, on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's one of the coolest poems I've ever read. And you can see the irony all throughout the poem. Ozymandias says, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Because apparently he thought nobody would ever rise to the might and power that he did. As far as he was concerned, Ozymandias was the greatest man who ever lived or would ever live. If you want to see how great Ozymandias really is, look at his building projects and his glorious works. See his statue. And if you want to be greater, build something greater. But 5,000 years later, we see the same inscription, and we have a different reason to despair. The great Ozymandias, the great pharaoh of Egypt, has done all that he can to become immortal through his building projects. But even that was lost to history. Look on his now destroyed works, ye mighty, and despair, because everything you do will be lost just like this. And that's the reality of death in this world. Our works and our legacy will be lost, and there's no way to escape death. The cold, impersonal passage of time washes away all that we have done. Very few of us are remembered for very long. None of us are remembered forever. For the Thessalonians that Paul is writing to, this was not a theoretical idea. As we've seen so far, this church had grown to feel like a family. But they didn't know a whole lot about the Bible because Paul had preached them for a couple of days before he was kicked out and had to run away before he was killed. They were preparing for God to come again and set the whole world right. But in the meantime, there were people in the church that they loved that were dying. Some of them, you might imagine, even dying in persecution for Jesus. Without lots of other Christians outside the city to help them understand, it was easy for them to grieve the deaths of their friends as if they had no hope. Christ died and rose again and would remain on the throne forever. But what would happen to everyone who followed him? Paul says that the Thessalonians shouldn't grieve like those who have no hope. And it turns out we actually have some of the writings of those people who Paul was talking about. Demetrius, who was a Greek orator around the same time as Paul, wrote some advice about how you should write a letter consoling another person because of something unfortunate happening to them. He writes this here as basically a form letter for people to use. He says, When I heard of the terrible things that you met at the hands of thankless fate, I felt the deepest grief, considering that what had happened had not happened to you more than happened to me. When I saw all these things that assail life, all that day long I cried to them. But then I considered that such things are the common lot of all. With nature establishing neither a particular time or age in which one must suffer anything, but often confronting us secret, secretly, awkwardly, and undeservedly. Since I happened not to be present to comfort you, I decided to do so by letter. Bear then what has happened as lightly as you can, and exhort yourself just as you would exhort someone else. For you know that reason will make it easier for you to be relieved of your grief with the passage of time. And what Demetrius said here is pretty typical of how Greeks and Romans thought of death in the ancient world. It was the kind of thing that the Thessalonians would have heard quite a lot. 
In fact, Plutarch, another philosopher from this time, argued something really similar. He said that grief is a natural reaction to death and that it's impossible for us not to be sad. But really, death is a part of life. So being sad in the face of death is irrational because there's nothing we can really do about it. So what you should do, according to Plutarch, is just stuff it down as much as you can because being overwhelmed by grief doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't help anything, and it's not rational. The Greeks and Romans thought that death was a natural part of life, so it's best just to accept it. They comforted themselves and others with these ideas. Maybe the dead will live on through something great they did. Maybe they will have all kinds of monuments, like Ozymandias did to honor him, that will last forever. Or maybe there will be stories told of him, or children or grandchildren born to them that will carry on their lives. Maybe life itself is suffering, and it's good that the person died and is now released from it. It's kind of a very similar theme that we hear ourselves nowadays. We often hear that death is a part of life. It's a natural thing, and it's hard to help being sad. But we should just get over it because it's true, and there's nothing you can do about it. But of course, Plutarch and the people who say this kind of want to have it both ways, don't they? Plutarch and, and these people, they want to say that grief is a natural reaction to death, because it obviously is. But he also wants to say that it's irrational because death is natural, and we can't do anything about it. Why is Plutarch willing to say that doing what's natural and grieving is bad, but then that death itself is bad, isn't bad because it's natural? Should we do what's natural and grieve, or should we do what's natural and recognize that death isn't really so bad? Is following nature good or bad, Plutarch? Now you have a pastor from the pulpit arguing with a man who's been dead for 2,000 years, but you hear a lot of the same thing today. You hear that death is a natural thing. It's just a part of life, so it's best not to, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to grieve. What Christianity says is something actually very different, even though you'll often hear Christians echoing what Plutarch said. Christianity says that the death of humans really isn't a natural part of life. Humans were never supposed to die. That was never what humans were meant to do. There was a time when humans existed before death, and it is completely natural for humans to live forever. Death entered the world through sin, and it is among the most tragic things we have to experience precisely because we were never supposed to experience it. Death is unnatural. And our instinctive revulsion when we see death is the right and rational response. Plutarch wants to say that both that grieving is natural and that death is natural. But we say that grieving is completely natural because death is totally unnatural. Death is in and of itself tragic. And so the only proper response to it is grief. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. That's completely true when we lose someone we love because we were never meant to be separated from the ones we love. We were made to live in peace and fellowship with God and with each other eternally. It's so painful to miss someone we love because the bonds we made with each other were never meant to go away. But it's also true when we lo lose someone we never knew. It's the 100% right reaction to tragic death that we hear about on the news or even the deaths that we see in our own lives, to mourn. Because humans were made in the image of God, 
and their death is a desecration of that image. It's just not right. Talking like the death of a loved one, whether expected or not, is natural, cheapens what death really is. It only looks natural to us because it's all we've ever experienced. But our natural grief in the face of death is a remnant of our proper response because we recognize that death is not the way it's supposed to be. Saying things like, this person will live on through their legacy like the Greeks and Romans did, or as Ozymandias did, is cold comfort in the face of this reality. It might be true, I guess, but who will be there to experience it? But Paul says that we don't have to grieve like that. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. If Christ rose again from the dead in his bodily form, then we will also rise from the dead with our bodies. We know that those we've lost are with God now in heaven, but one day they will rise from the dead and walk the new heavens and new earth with their bodies just as Christ did after his resurrection. The Christian message is that death really is a colossal evil against creation and against the human race. There's no point in making peace with it. Death is our enemy, and it will never stop being so. But God became a human in Christ and did battle with death. It was impossible for the grave to hold Christ, and so he won the decisive victory over our mortal enemy in death. So now the power of death over us is defeated, and everything, including death, has been put into the authority of our anointed, conquering king, Jesus Christ. And just as death cannot hold Christ, it cannot hold any Christian forever who claims Christ as his king. John Chrysostom said that even now, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and to those in the tombs bestowing life. A common euphemism for death in those days, in the days of Paul, was to fall asleep. In other words, instead of saying, so-and-so has died, they would say, so-and-so has fallen asleep. It softens the blow a little bit, kind of like how we would say, so-and-so has passed away, instead of so-and-so has died. This was a well-known thing that was, used, that was used by pretty much everyone, just like how a lot of people prefer to say, pass away, instead of die. What's interesting is that Paul very rarely uses this euphemism. He's perfectly happy to say, so-and-so has died in his letters. He doesn't want to soften it. With only a few exceptions, he tends to only say, so-and-so fell asleep, when he's talking about our Christian hope for resurrection in this chapter and in 1 Corinthians 15. Basically, everyone in his culture says, so-and-so has fallen asleep to soften the blow of death. And the idea of using the word fall asleep for death really makes a lot of sense. Being dead kind of looks like falling asleep. But of course, it's a deceptive word that intentionally avoids accurately describing death. You wake up from sleep, you don't wake up from death. What Paul is doing here is putting a new spin on this falling asleep thing. It's particularly accurate to say that a Christian falls asleep in death because a Christian is actually going to wake up the power of death to hold us forever is gone. By Christ's resurrection, death has been defeated. So the power of death has been put into the authority of God. This evil, destructive thing that is never how the world was supposed to be, 
the thing that makes us grieve the loss of our friends and family, the thing that sometimes makes our lives and efforts look pointless and makes Ozymandias look silly. In Christ, the evil of death has as much permanent power over us as sleep. Because one day, those that we have lost will wake up. That's why Paul is confident to taunt even death itself, even the mortal enemy of humanity since the days of Adam and Eve. Death at one time looked like it held unstoppable power over us. But our conquering king has made it look pathetic, just like sleep. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We can spit in the face of death because it has no power over us. Christ has utterly defeated and embarrassed death. Unlike Ozymandias, whose accomplishments were destroyed in death and the cold passage of time, everything that we do in Christ will last. Christians have a real legacy that can't be destroyed by death. The people who hear our gospel message will be there for us and the new heavens and new earth and we will see what God has really done through us. Our lives really do matter. They're not meaningless. Because they don't, won't just be washed away in the tide of death. Our resurrection gives our work dignity. Because when Christ comes, no one is going to look at the, our great works in pity like they will look on the works of Ozymandias. Look on the great works of Christians in past centuries and take heart because our work will last just as long as theirs. The defeat of death also means that we can approach life differently. Death has a real power over us, even in our daily lives, even if we deny it. If one day we're gonna die and that's it, we have to do whatever we can to make our lives enjoyable because our lives are a scarce resource. You only live once, so you better make it good. And if you have to take some shortcuts morally to get there, then go ahead. Sin causes death, but death also causes sin. Because let's face it, sin can be fun. And if you're going to die, there's no point in denying yourself. And there's certainly no point in suffering. The Thessalonian Christians faced really tough persecution to follow Jesus. They had to suffer for Jesus. They lost relationships, and they were mocked and scorned by people who used to be their friends. They were easy, easy targets for state-ordered violence. If not for the resurrection, who would ever choose this path? There's a sense where the same is true for us. Being a Christian means giving up on a lot of stuff that makes this world pleasurable. You have to give up the pleasures of sex and porn with whoever and whomever you want. You have to give up the ability to spend your money however you'd want for whatever you want. You might be forced to tell the truth when life would be a lot easier if you could lie. You have awkward conversations with people because you want them to know the good news of Jesus. You could go anywhere you want on a Sunday morning, but you choose to go to church. In short, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus, sacrificing yourself for the good of others and in service of God. Why would you live that kind of life if not for the resurrection? If you give up the only life you have in service for others, then you're a sucker. Paul says, if only for this world we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The truth of the gospel says that we can lay down this life 
because we will receive another one from God. We can give ourselves up in love and service to others because there really isn't any scarcity to this life. Our lives are eternal. We're free to deny ourselves and to take risks because we're playing with house money. Sure, we can give up 80 years in this world for the sake of others because we'll have 80 billion years in the eternity. We're not really giving up all that much. And that's the calculation that we honor on Memorial Day of the people in our church who sacrificed their entire lives in service of Christ and were rewarded with eternal lives. Finally, the resurrection means that the relationships that we form in our churches will last forever. The church in Thessalonica had, to, had grown to look like a family, and they were afraid that their brothers and sisters had passed away. But Paul comforts them by saying, For the Lord himself were descend from the heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the tr- sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The point of this passage is not only that we will see Christ on the last day, as glorious as that would be. It's that we will see those that we have missed from our church family as well. And so we, all of us, will always be with the Lord. The most consequential things that happen every single day have nothing to do with the presidential election, but everything to do with the small things that the church does together. Our church potluck on Thursday will matter so much more in the grand scheme of things than a meeting in Congress, because the relationships we form together in that potluck will last forever. They will be honored by Christ because he defeated death. And whatever Congress does in a few short years will look just like Ozymandias and his legs sticking up out of the air in the middle of the desert, completely meaningless and silly. Finally, Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. When we're tempted to face death like everyone else does, when we try to ignore death or think of it as natural and decide not to mourn it, encourage one another by saying that death is our enemy and it is worth mourning, but it has been defeated and embarrassed by Christ. When we're tempted to try to squeeze every last drop of pleasure out of this life because one day we'll die, encourage one another by reminding them that death has no power over us even now because God will raise our bodies up and life is not a scarce resource. When we're afraid that our good relationships with each other will be lost, Encourage each other that nobody who we have lost in Christ is ever really gone. Because our church family, more than anything else in all of creation, will last forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you rule over the whole world, and you have subjected even death to your authority. Shape our minds around your eternal life, so that we can grasp that our, the lives we live can be different because they are eternal. Inspire us with a vision of your coming kingdom so that we can create a legacy for ourselves that will never die. In your name we pray. Amen.